what's really happening in this industry to um, be excited about and not to be necessarily frightened of, but actually to grab this with two hands and be able to move forward into this industry with actually a lot of optimism and hope and highlight some of the stories and best practices. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. You know, there has been a tremendous shift and disruption in this industry and in the way restaurants are run, and that will continue in the future. Competition will continue to be fierce. We've all heard that expression, survival of the fittest and evolve or die. And it's really more important now than ever that we understand what that means. We continue to evolve our restaurants and execute, be forward thinking. So I'm really excited to introduce authors of the new book, Delivering the Digital Restaurant, Your Roadmap to the Future of Food. The authors are Ms. Meredith Sandland and Mr. Carl Osborne. We're going to be talking all about the necessary digital technology out there, the pivots that are necessary, the pivots that you've probably done that will continue. We're going to talk all about you know, what guests are looking for and what their expectations are as we emerge from the pandemic, as well as the labor crisis solutions to those which everyone is struggling with. So there's so much in this episode. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Guys, I've always believed in systems to run a really effective restaurant. They say you have a system if you can walk away and leave your place for a day, a week, or a month, and it's just as successful, just as profitable when you return, if not more so. Now, the staff are really the foundation of this, and it all comes down to the word empowerment. You know, if you've got really great people, and if you can develop those people to have your back, and to run it as if they owned it, treat everything as if they had to pay for it, that's a super powerful system. Once you have the staff in place, it really comes down to three things. It comes down to, one, staff training, development, recognition, and rewards to create what I call your dream team, how to empower your team to think and act like owners and to treat everything as if they owned it and had to pay for it, and to deliver amazing guest service experiences to your customers, to serve and sell because sales are the lifeblood of your business, not allowing order takers on the floor, but teaching everyone to recognize opportunities and make suggestions that we know the customers will enjoy and appreciate. It all comes down to training, training, training. Number two, cost controls and maximizing profit. You need to know your critical financial numbers on a weekly basis, and it only takes 10 minutes, but you need to understand these things. How about your daily break even? How much it costs you to open the doors to your restaurant each day? Inventory is not just walking around and figuring out what your order is that week. It's knowing the true value of your goods on hand at any given point in time. And you need this information to be able to calculate your true food and beverage costs. Your labor costs are also important. And running a weekly labor analysis against sales. If you know these things, I can teach you how to maximize your profit and control your costs. And then number three is what I call marketing firepower and affinity. You know, affinity is defined as a really powerful sense of loyalty and belonging where your customers become raving fans and they're like an army of brand ambassadors spreading the word for your restaurant. Well, all of this is included in the Restaurant Rockstars Academy. If you really want to take your restaurant to the next level, post-pandemic, things are heating up, customers are coming back, 
Now's the time to really maximize your opportunities, maximize your sales and profits, and create that dream team staff. Check it out at restaurantrockstars.com. It's the Restaurant Rockstars Academy. Rockstars, let me tell you about Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed for restaurateurs, by restaurateurs. Effective labor management is more important than ever to maximize profit and success, especially now as restaurants begin to reopen and expand their teams. Trusted by over half a million restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the tools you need to simplify scheduling, easily manage time and attendance, communicate with your team, and retain your talent. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll systems you already use and trust, turning your team into a competitive advantage to your business. Right now, Restaurant Rockstar's listeners can get three months absolutely free. Get started now at sevenshifts.com forward slash restaurant rockstars. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com forward slash restaurant rockstars to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Now on with the episode. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, and our goal is to help you as an operator rediscover the passion for this business. The pandemic and the labor crisis are the biggest challenges this industry has ever faced. But if you're still standing, if you're still out there, kudos to you. But now's the time to dig deep, get resourceful and creative. So I'm really excited to introduce my guests today, and that is Ms. Meredith Sandland and Mr. Carl Orsborn, and they are authors. Well, first of all, they are industry veterans with over 40 years of experience between them, but they have written a new book that's a game changer. It's called Delivering the Digital Restaurant, Your Roadmap to the Future of Food. Welcome to the show, guys. How are you today? So good. Thanks for having us. I'm absolutely excited to have you. You know, I get some pretty high profile guests, but your experiences are particularly fascinating. So I normally start, as my audience knows, with the backstory of my guests. So Meredith, if you could tell us about your history in restaurants, I know you've worked for Yum Brands and, you know, obviously that's one of the largest operators with KFC and Taco Bell and Pizza Hut and those restaurants, but I'm sure it starts way back before then. So even if it was your first job when you were 15 years old. Tell us everything about your hospitality backstory, please. Yeah, you know, I would love to say that I was uh, working in a restaurant when I was 15, but I was actually turned down for the job that I applied for at a restaurant and instead ended up working at the mall um, and uh, spent about 10 years in mergers and acquisitions work with a big consulting firm. And Taco Bell called me, the recruiter called me and said, come talk to us. And I said, oh, I have a job. I'm fine. And they said, no, no, come talk to us. And I went down and I I met with um, Melissa Laura and Greg Creed, who were then the CFO and the CEO. And they were two of the most wonderful people that I have ever met. And I was convinced the restaurants are for me. And, you know, I think it turns out that restaurant people generally are wonderful people. Uh, You just uh, have a lot of uh, folks who get into the business because they love people, they love hospitality, and they're very focused on making others happy and creating an environment that makes others happy. And that's what working at Taco Bell was like. It was an environment where, yes, you contributed a lot and got a lot done, but it was also just fun to be there. So you I was totally there. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I was there for um, about six years and I was uh, ended my time there as the chief development officer. I built about a thousand Taco Bells uh, with my team across the U.S. and some internationally as well. 
And uh, as I went through that journey, I started to realize that things were really changing here in the U.S. Um, we were just starting to have uh, delivery. We did, as talk about our first test with I think DoorDash at the time, and you were starting to see a lot more urban living um, than had happened the previous 10 years. Uh, and so we thought, gosh, you know, it'd be great if we could just go in a commissary and deliver tacos. But it turns out that ghost kitchens didn't exist at the time. And so when I walked into Kitchen United and saw, in fact, a commissary where you could deliver tacos, I thought, man, these guys get it. They're making the future. And I went over and became employee number four of Kitchen United and helped figure out what the business model was and um, what exactly we were going to do with it, raise all the initial capital, all of those things. And as part of that journey, I met Carl. Fantastic. I love it. That That's a tremendous story. And what a demanding career though, right? Because mergers and acquisitions and high-end consulting firms require so much of you. And of course, the work is extremely gratifying, but those that have been in it would say it's a complete commitment and there's no free time. Did you find that you had a balance in your life back then, or was it just a complete commitment and that was your life? Uh, then I would say that was my life, but I don't think that's very different from restaurants. Anyone who's a independent right. owner operator knows <laughs> it's a complete commitment. And you know, yes. when when someone doesn't show up, like you're the last the last um, person standing, you got to get in there, right? So I don't know yeah. that it's terribly different. Um, it's just a commitment to a different thing. Especially these days in the restaurant business, yeah. you're absolutely right, Carl. Why don't you tell us about your story? Absolutely. Well, thanks for having us on, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, always following Meredith is always a challenge because she's got such an impressive resume, but I'll do my best, Roger. Um, my background largely sits in the sea store world, uh, and I spent 18 years with BP, the big oil and gas company, of which most of that time was in the retail space um, and doing a whole range of different roles at the kind of ground level, at internal kind of consultant positions, and then ultimately ran the AMPN business over here on the west coast of the US, which for those of your listeners that don't know of it, it's a just about a thousand locations franchised uh, does over a billion dollars worth of sales each year and as part of that you know a good 25 30 percent of it is the food business and uh, i'd been in the kind of retail food space for quite a while but when i came across to the west coast in 2015 one of the things that i had noticed quite considerably was just the fact that the seesaw business hadn't adapted fast enough to the, the change in demands of the consumer and now what do i mean by that well i mean fresher food better for you food, food that actually has a story to it, as opposed to something that you really don't know whether you're going to be feeling guilty about feeding it to your kids or not. And one of the passion projects I had during that time, and it turned out to be a, a very successful double-digit growth initiative, was launching a fresh food campaign and, and bringing that into the kind of um, thousand units that we had across the, the network there. But even despite that, Roger, the, the challenges were very clear to me. And I think the challenges that C-Store executives were seeing even back in 2016 to 2017 are still the same today, and they're very similar to what restaurants are facing. And what I mean by that is uh, for C-Stores, which, of course, in the most part are connected to gas stations, are seeing a, a decline in transactions. People are driving their cars less. Uh, there's electrification happening, so people are using alternative vehicles and therefore not necessarily needing to go to a gas station. And then for even those that are using cars, their their MPG is different as well. So therefore, they don't visit as often. And so in the C-Store space, we're seeing this challenge of people not visiting as often. So therefore, you need a more compelling offer and you need to be able to have more of an omni-channel op offer for your, your customers to actually receive. And I think in many ways, this is the same for restaurants. 
you know, the, the dining occasion is still very present, but it, it's declining. In Certainly in certain categories, it's declining. And I think um, for, for us, when I was looking at this and I, I was thinking about Mike in a future career, I thought it's it's time to try and get into something a bit, a bit more disruptive. And a mutual friend of Meredith and myself um, introduced us, and she told me of this lady that had gone to do something a bit disruptive, innovative, had left a big blue chip kind of organization and was getting into ghost kitchens. And I was like, well, what the heck is a ghost kitchen? I, I had no idea. And so I was curious just from the standpoint of being curious. And ultimately, it turned out uh, really well because I ended up going to work uh, with Meredith over at Kitchen United and ran their operation, their customer success team. And it was really through that where I noticed the changing tides for the average restaurant owner operator. And not just the independents, by the way, also the big chain executives that were trying to see these changing times and adapt to them. And in the ghost kitchen space, where we were trying to introduce this concept, we realized that actually even those that have an intent, a will to really move into this kind of direction, still haven't really got the toolbox to know how to succeed with it. And so Meredith and I, I think we're driving back from Pasadena um, to our homes back in Orange County. Um, when was that? December 2019, I think it was, Meredith. And uh, I said to her, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if there was a book? That we, we could give to each of our restaurant clients and they could read this book and that would help them understand how to really you know succeed and, and prosper if you will through through this and as often happens there wasn't a book and actually there aren't that many books uh beyond kind of danny myers setting the table that really set things out for people to understand what is happening in their in their world right now and We've tried through a hundred different uh, executives that we've spoken to across both the technology and the restaurant world, pull together a tale of exactly why this is happening and what's really happening in this industry to um, be excited about and not to be necessarily frightened of, but actually to grab this with two hands and be able to move forward into this industry with actually a lot of optimism and hope and highlight some of the stories and best practices. And so over the last year and a half or so, uh, Meredith and I have been writing this book, Delivering the Digital Restaurant, uh, getting it to bestseller status in the, in the last few months and, um, you know, been really on the kind of PR tour, if you will, in trying to help people understand why they should read it. And so that's why I come back to what I said at the beginning. It's great to be able to be here in front of your listeners, who I think are a similar kind of group to who we are trying to target with this book. Well, let's dig a little deeper because what you've said has given us a taste and there's so much relevance to what I'm hearing in this book. Now, the former CEO of Yum! Brands said that your book is a must-read for operators, GMs, and others. Let's let's talk about why, and let's dig into the nuts and bolts of what information you are delivering. But let's start with the why, and then let's talk about the what. Yeah, uh, very kind of, of Greg to say that, and I think um, you know one of the things he used to say at Yam in his leadership position was, you know, GMs needed to start thinking beyond the four walls of their restaurant. And, you know, that was probably in, in the year 2018, 2019, that he would talk about that and, and well before the pandemic. And what did he mean by that? He meant that, yes, your restaurant might be producing food in that back of house within those four walls, but where it's being consumed is out in the wider, wider world. And uh, the, the thing is, the consumer is changing. And so when I think about the why of, you know, why make this change, I hear a lot of restaurants say, oh, you know, if only venture capitalists would stop investing in our, our industry, everything would go back to normal. And that's not how it is. Venture capitalists invest in an industry because they see a consumer change that isn't being met by the existing industry structure. 
And so what they're trying to do is match the industry to where the consumer has moved. And um, the consumer has changed on a number of fronts. Um, in the first chapter, we talk about eating as a nuclear family no more. And why does why is this related to digital restaurants, right? Like the nuclear family, that seems so what? But if you think about, you know, in the extreme case, my grandmother's family, her mom was cooking for 13 children. She operated a little restaurant, right? She could cook at scale. Everything would get consumed every night. She was cooking for all this big group of people. When I cook for my son, there's, there's three of us, right? And the odds that I can go to the grocery store, buy everything I need, use it all up before it goes bad, spend the time making something that's as good as what a restaurant could make, and that we're going to eat it all and not not have any leftovers or throw it away. I mean, it's not going to happen, right? And so even before you include my time, the average cost of a meal prepared at home is so much higher than what it used to be for someone like my grandmother's family. And when you take that into um, consideration and compare that to getting a restaurant meal, you can see why there's been this huge growth in restaurant consumption, in particular off-premise. And Millennials today, there's a statistic in the book that says millennials today spend $1,000 a year less on groceries than my generation did 10 years ago when I was that same age. Why is that? It's because they're they're voting with their feet. They're saying, this doesn't make any economic sense for me to go to the grocery store, cook all this food, throw a bunch of stuff away, never consume it. Like I'm just going to get things at a restaurant. And oftentimes that occasion is still at home because they're enjoying some experience at home and don't want to interrupt it, hence delivery, mm-hmm. but they're using a restaurant to cook it. Right. Absolutely. Wow. So we talk about disruption. That word's come up several times already in this conversation. And clearly, pre-pandemic, some would say that the large behemoth chains made it so difficult for independent operators to compete, and they had to be so much more resourceful and relentless and all that because they didn't have the economies of scale and the buying power. And obviously, they had to have their systems dialed. And so many operators just didn't have that. You know, Many of them were chefs that were really great culinarians, but they didn't necessarily run a strong business. Others got into the business for a variety of reasons. And now the pandemic has sort of leveled the playing field and even the largest chains are struggling with the labor crisis, but they have been in a much better position to pivot their businesses. Let's talk about the massive disruption that you continue to see that's facing American restaurants moving forward. And what does your crystal ball predict for the future of say independent operators and how can they make their businesses stronger? Yeah, the the disruption, you're right, is certainly occurring and continuing to occur, Roger. I think what we'll find over the course of the next five to 10 years are continuing winds of change, if you will. And one of the themes of our book is to really try and encourage the restaurant owner operator to build the mindset and the ability to have that kind of flexibility, the agility, if you will, to be able to adapt to these changing times. But I also said at the beginning, this piece around, this has never been a more exciting time to own a restaurant. And I think the reason for that is because of those those words you just used, leveling the playing field. Um, Available to every restaurant across the country right now are a set of tools that, say, 10 years ago, would have cost millions of dollars and would have only been accessible to the largest chains. And now every single restaurant can utilize them. Now that's that's just stunning, right? When you think about that level of capability, that's just stunning. The other side of this is that you're no longer limited by the amount of tables in your dining room. You've actually got a whole world out there to explore. 
And beyond that, you don't even need to have a brick and mortar restaurant to be able to go and expand and reach those customers that are perhaps in other segments of your geography that you'd like to target. So all of these things are now available beyond just the technology. I mean, the world that Meredith and I came from in the ghost kitchen space is allowing restaurants to expand in a capital-like fashion and do so in a way that can really harness their potential. And you'll see across a number of different restaurant groups, we might mention some later, you know, claims of being the fastest restaurant growth um, rate ever right now, with people opening up hundreds of units in a matter of months. You know, that is happening across the country, and it's happened in other countries across the world too. But the disruption is very much centered around technology. Um, we, we feature a chapter about the marketplaces and the fact that the marketplaces, which obviously have quite a, a rough ride of it at times, uh, depending on the, your own particular perspective. But the marketplaces, in many ways, kept many restaurants afloat in the last year because of their ability to be able to tell customers that were sat on their smartphones in isolation across the country to be able to say, actually, how about we bring dinner to you tonight? And that was a capability that wasn't available many years ago. And I think the, the marketplaces have certainly been able to drive restaurant awareness. And then we're seeing the first party platforms, the platforms that are making it easier for a restaurant owner operator that perhaps isn't too tech savvy to be able to have their own marketplace, if you will, for customers that are loyal to them, that are interested in being able to go and have an engagement with them. And, and the technology and the functionality that's available through these fast first party platforms is also pretty astounding. And then, you know, there, it goes on from that. And the book covers the marketing techniques, the loyalty techniques, the ways in which you can think about stacking virtual brands on top of your core brand. There are all these various different things. But the biggest challenge, I would argue, Roger, is that there's so much. And I often quote um, this example of uh, an event I went to at FS Tech earlier this year, where I saw a restaurant owner operator in the ex exhibition hall. And he stood there like a deer in the headlights because he was like, where the heck do I start? Because there are so many different opportunities, so much disruption happening across numerous different aspects of the, the value chain that I think that in itself becomes quite a big challenge. I think we're touching on something really powerful right now, and it's a pivot that some restaurants have been able to make. It's a pivot that many restaurants are considering right now. Your book subtitle is your roadmap to the future of food. How challenging or what would your best advice be? Let's let's talk about the difference first between a virtual restaurant and a ghost kitchen, because that is a super hot topic right now. And these virtual restaurant companies are popping up all over the place, suddenly offering traditional sit-down restaurants the opportunity to expand their reach through third-party delivery with multiple brands. When you have one concept, you can suddenly overnight be 15 different concepts, all offering the same food. The customer has no idea where the food is coming from. It's getting delivered third-party. And now you can suddenly make your kitchen more productive during the times that you most need the business. That's a powerful concept unto itself. And then there's the ghost kitchen. So we have all these restaurants out there that traditionally were sit-down restaurants before the pandemic, and then government regulations shut them down. They had to immediately pivot to online ordering and curbside pickup and delivery. And now some of that has returned and restaurants are sit-down again. But let's talk about you know, the leverage and the power and the future potential of a pivot that sort of disrupts and makes the old school model sort of obsolete. And what do you see the future? I hope that wasn't a convoluted question, but let's talk about the opportunities there, how challenging it might be, and what your advice would be to make some of those pivots. Yeah, you know, 
Um, for me, all of the things that you just talked about are all the things that make me so excited about the future for restaurants. And let's start with the idea of virtual restaurants, first of all. Um, adding a virtual restaurant or two or 10 or 15, um, however many you think are going to fit into your kitchen, is a fantastic way to, as you say, expand your reach. Um, you can maybe get to a consumer who would not have normally come into your restaurant by getting to a different price point or getting to a different flavor profile, um, possibly going to a niche like veganism or uh, vegetarianism that maybe wouldn't work in a full sit-down restaurant, but does work um, as just a sales layer coming out of your kitchen. Um, these brands also have the effect of increasing frequency because while a consumer might not use your restaurant three times a week, they might use three different brands in one week, right? Yes. So between Absolutely. both of those things, you're essentially creating sales layers that can come on top. Now, um, you have to do that in a responsible way and make sure that those things fit in with both the ingredients that are in your back of house and also your cooking processes. Um, because you can blow up your kitchen, as you know, if you um, add too many ingredients or if you add crazy new cooking processes that don't fit in with the rest of it. Uh, but they can add a lot of sales to um, an existing restaurant that's doing other things. And importantly, they can help add sales at different times of day and um, days of the week that might be slower, all of which is great. But the flip side of that is that someone has to make these brands. Someone has to create something that's going to work. They have to understand the digital marketing, understand what flies online with, um, by and large, a younger consumer. And um, that, to me, is what gets me so excited. Because do you remember, like, I don't know, 15 years ago when food trucks were all the rage and all the young chefs were going in and making cool food trucks? And that was like the neat thing to do. Now you can do that with a virtual restaurant. So you can go out and you can try whatever, put it out online, see if it flies, see if you get feedback that consumers love that product. If they do, great. If they don't, try another one. And you can do that so inexpensively. You don't have to kit out a restaurant. You don't have to put up signs. You can just throw it out online and see what happens, see what kind of feedback you get. So I think we're going to see a renaissance of food concepts as a result because you will have so many entrepreneurial chefs with amazing ideas coming up with new ways of doing things, putting them out on the internet and seeing what works. Very cool. Um, so that's the virtual restaurant side of the house. And then on the ghost kitchen side of the house. So a ghost kitchen to me is like the hardware. It's, it's the place where the food is made, where the virtual brand is like the software. It's the thing that gets made in the kitchen. And ghost kitchens are an opportunity for us as an industry to rethink um, how we're spending the money that we make in the kitchen. So, you know, traditionally the restaurant advice was 30, 30, 30, 10, right? 30% food and paper, 30% labor, 30% occupancy and other 10% profit. And what a ghost kitchen allows you to do is blow up that last 30 and say, yeah, you know what? I'm actually going to totally change my occupancy model. I'm going to totally change um, my revenue model and actually maybe even a little bit my labor model. So you might sneak into that second 30. And as you redo that cost structure as an operator, you can either make more money on a um, infinitely lower CapEx, initial CapEx, or you can choose to reinvest that in the consumer and actually bring prices down. Now, that is crazy to be thinking about right now when labor is going up, commodities are going up, there's shortages all over the supply chain. 
Um, but I think that's a future that we're looking at where um, these new and different models can be so much more efficient in serving consumers that they could actually bring prices down. That's beautiful. You've made those opportunities so crystal clear because again, if I was in the restaurant business running a restaurant again, I would always be thinking to the future, you know, because that whole evolve or die concept that's disrupted and decimated so many different industries. If you don't continue to innovate and think about the future, you're just going to get run over. Now is the time. Again, if restaurants are still standing, how can you optimize your opportunities? How can you lower your costs? How can you make your operation more efficient, more productive with less people and make it more profitable? You know, I love that piece that you talked about, about, you know, manipulating the percentages there and getting a little bit more profit here. Because again, traditionally restaurants, if they were making a 10% net profit, that was doing well in this business, even though that is a very slim margin, right? So any opportunity you have to increase those margins, because again, we work so hard in this business. Your, your lifeblood has gone into this. You probably missed your kids growing up and their soccer games and their high school graduations because you are a restaurant owner and it is a complete commitment. So why wouldn't you try to optimize your profits and optimize the operation? And now's the time to think about is there another pivot in your future that gets you what I call bulletproof or gets you closer to having a higher profit for all the effort that you're putting in? That, that was beautiful. Let's talk, about, um, let's talk about the consumer and shifting tastes and expectations because you know it's kind of painful just to watch the news these days because we've all seen air rage and you know the divisive country and the masks and the people that don't wear masks and the fights that are happening and now the same things have been happening in restaurants you know consumers are seemingly more demanding than ever they have higher expectations and those expectations aren't being met because of the labor shortage and now that customers are returning to restaurants in droves and the business is booming again Restaurants are challenged by just being able to stay open the same hours without cutting hours, cutting days. And now that there's an opportunity to make money, they're still not making that money because they're forced to not be able to meet the consumer demand that's out there. So what are consumers really looking for? Is there any compassion on the part of the restaurant customer right now to understand? Or are they just, you know, I'm paying higher prices than ever because restaurants are raising their prices just to maintain their margins? And yet I'm not getting a service that I've come to expect pre-pandemic, let's say. I mean, that's a real big topic unto itself, isn't it? Isn't it just? I think um, the, the, the challenge right now is, as you say, it's, it's underpinned by the labor challenge that's occurring across many retail uh, verticals. But I think there's something which is um, important through all of this, and that, that's the art of hospitality. You know, Thank and you. That, I love and, that and word. That, and that hasn't ended. That that hasn't gone away. I think a lot of people that are resistant to the technological trends that are affecting the industry think, well, this is going to kill hospitality. Um, and you know, part of our research for the book was actually digging into hospitality in a digital context. You know, I became a DoorDash driver for a bit, Roger, just to see and throw myself into the kind of ecosystem. And I felt the brunt, if you will, of a lack of hospitality towards First me as hand. a driver. First yep. hand. Mm. And um, we we talked to a gentleman called, called uh, Lloyd Wenzel in the book, who was a, a, a VP of restaurants at some of the biggest hotels in Vegas. And he he talks about the importance of hospitality and how room service in a similar way is similar to the restaurant space. And how if a food item was running late for a delivery to, I don't know, one of the 5,000 rooms at the MGM, how a customer would clearly be a bit irate about that. 
But the best way for restaurants to respond is to think about hospitality. And his example was, you know, when they knew that they were delivering a room service item 20 minutes late, they would proactively take a chocolate glazed strawberry and add it to the dish. And to be able to, so that way the room service person or the delivery driver, if we're going to keep that metaphor going, has that kind of ability to be able to say, look, we're sorry we're running late, but enjoy this little add-on from us as, a, as an apology. Now, we did that and we included that part in the book because that's an area right now where it's it's time for us to not necessarily victimize restaurants and the, and the struggles they're having, but actually to say, this is a great chance to continue to talk about hospitality and to remember why we're in this business and to remember all the things that are really driving people back to restaurants. The, it's Yes, it's the ambience. Yes, it's the great food, but it's the hospitality and service, the way in which a restaurant can make them feel special in those, in those moments. And there's no reason why we can't make that happen across all of the various different channels, not just dining. And so my, my comment to it is those, um, those companies, those restaurants that are treating their staff right, that are create, uh, creating an environment to make them feel welcome and to, to try and relieve the stress upon their shoulders, because of course, a number of them are stressed right now because they're having to work a lot harder because of the lack of people in their team. But those companies that create the right environment for them are creating then an environment for those people to extend their sense of feeling upon not just the consumers, but the drivers and everyone that they're supporting. And, and those restaurants that are doing that, I think, are creating a better environment for all. That's wonderful. Let's talk about where technology and hospitality meet, because I'd say the crux of your book is still about the key technology that is driving the business forward, that is the future of this business. But you touched on that word hospitality that is so important. Everyone has their own definition of hospitality. I think I learned a long time ago that hospitality is absent when something happens to the guest. Hospitality is present when something happens for the guest. And I beat that into my staff. You know, We talked about that constantly. And that is just a basic definition of hospitality, which is still so foundational in this business, yet the technology piece is really where the rubber meets the road. Where do the two meet? And, and how, would you, how would you describe that? Oh my gosh. In so many places, um, because technology intertwines with the consumer experience, technology intertwines with the employee experience all throughout a digitally run business. And um, because I think hospitality, for me at least, ultimately is people intersecting with each other, um, that means there are so many different places where technology Im impacts hospitality. The one that um, we talk about in the book that is most um, makes the most sense to me is about digital marketing. And we talk about the example of your awesome employee, your very best employee who remembers everyone. They remember their names and their birthdays and their anniversaries and their favorite dishes. And they just make that guest feel so welcome. Um, so included. We're just glad you're here. And you think to yourself, man, I wish all of my employees could be like that employee, right? But it's hard. Not everyone has that talent or that skill. Not everyone is emotionally present every day that they come into work um, and able to put their all into it in the same way. And what technology unlocks is the ability to do that very consistently using some software crutches, right? And so sometimes that's the software telling the employees, hey, remember this person is like this, that, or the other, and do these things. Sometimes that's the software talking directly to a guest in the form of email marketing or text marketing, 
in the form of notifications on the app, letting them know we have this new thing in that you're totally going to love because it's just like this other thing, you know, this seasonal item is back and I know you loved it last year, all those kinds of things, Um, which to me, take what we all love doing, which is making our guests so happy and making it consistently available to every single guest every single time. Wonderful. Just to add to that, uh, I think the the other challenge, of course, today is, is that because of social media, any great experience can be told to millions of people and any bad experience can be told to millions of people as well. And so there are technology platforms that we feature in the book that actually talk to the idea of how do you take that customer sentiment and turn it into an insight for you in, in the way in which you change your restaurant's operation and do it in a way that perhaps stops the negative publicity getting out onto uh, Google reviews on Facebook, but more into an insight as to what you need to do to tweak your, your restaurant's operation. And so there's that kind of double side of it in the sense that it's great if you're doing something well, more people are going to hear about it. But on the flip side, if you do something badly, it's not like it was 10 years ago. Now, a lot more people than just the person affected and their 10 best friends are going to hear about it. Let's dig a little deeper into the specific technology that you deem essential to this business. Now, everyone at this point has a point of sale system, and that is as basic as it gets. And now seemingly new technology in the hospitality space comes out every single day, everything from complete automated back of house financial systems to inventory controls to you name it. I mean, the online ordering piece, the third-party delivery piece. I mean, it could be overwhelming to an independent operator, especially one that might be an old school person that's just not tech savvy. There's the learning curve to overcome. There's the, well, let me go back to when I own restaurants. You know, for decades, this is a business where people don't necessarily have the courtesy of setting an appointment in advance. You know, people knock at the back door all day long trying to sell you things you think you don't need. You become very jaded very quickly to the phone ringing all day, people trying to sell you things you think you don't need. And then you throw the technology piece at someone that's just trying to run a business during the most challenging times of all. What are the essential pieces of technology that absolutely every operator could benefit from? get beyond that learning curve, embrace this technology, run with it, and it's going to improve your business. Are there essential pieces of tech that you would recommend? Well, uh, yes, there are. But I think there's also um, a recognition of deploying them at the right pace for your for your business and for you. Um, so clearly the first, and we kind of try and talk about this in the book in the sense of um, just being on a third-party platform isn't turning yourself into a digital restaurant. Sorry, folks, it's that you have to do more than just that. Um, but one of the things which we do advocate is being on those third-party marketplaces and being on the ones that are relevant for you and your local geography. Now, there are some aspects in that which also are important, just the, the fact of thinking about your photography, thinking about how you describe your items, how you actually create your menu so that it's optimized for delivery, and to think about just the uh, time it takes to create those items so that you fit into the appropriate carousels on those third parties. So there's a whole range of things around just being on the third parties first and then being optimized on those third parties. Once you've got to that kind of position, Roger, then it's about, well, how do I create that first party platform? How do I create an interface that allows guests that have had a great experience to come to me directly? Now, there's benefits of that, of course. One is the big one, which is around the fees and not having to spend as much on the, the cost of that customer. But if you look at the third parties as a customer acquisition approach, then your first party platform is about how do you retain them and also get to know them better. So so Meredith earlier mentioned that piece around that 
you know, the best server that you've ever had, knowing about your every single one of your guests, their kids' names, what they ordered last time, and their favorite bottle of wine. Well, now you don't need to have that same level across each of your servers because if your technology is storing that information, it can do it all for you. And it can help your guests to be able to say, oh, you haven't ordered from us for four weeks. Uh, why don't you try our special and here's a 20% discount? So that kind of technology on the first party platforms and being able to accumulate the data and use the data in such a way that you can start having a digital dialogue with them is a really important part of it too. And when I think once you've got to a place where you're optimizing that first party platform, then you look at the add-ons and you look at the areas of issue that perhaps your business has got, the areas of opportunity that you're trying to look. So uh, we were just talking about customer sentiment. If you're finding that your Google reviews are below four, for example, then perhaps you need to invest in technologies that are in that space. So one of the platforms we talk about is Tattle. There's another called Ovation. That those two platforms are out there to really support restaurants to be able to use customer sentiment and to be able to increase both the reviews but also the insights as to what's driving that that number down, if you will. Um, There could be others which actually focus on loyalty programs. There could be others which talk about the ability to, um, you know, just drive a level of engagement uh, through social media so that you're reaching customers beyond the third parties. But I think it depends, after you've got those first foundational blocks in place, on what's the most driving aspect, what are the biggest concerns that you have. And And of course, a lot of um, restaurants right now, their pain point is labor. Um, it's not any of these things that drive the top line or, or consumer satisfaction, it's labor. Um, so we've talked a lot recently about all of the different ways in which technology can help optimize um, the relationship with the employee to make your labor pool stronger. Yeah, and that could that could include anything from video interviewing through to the way in which your, your staff members can talk to each other about swapping shifts out. And I think that's a great point, Meredith, in the sense of just understanding that the digital restaurant isn't just about the consumer engagement. It's everything all the way through it. Let's talk a little bit about, talk a little bit more about third-party delivery and how it's evolved. I mean, it has become an essential part of this business. Initially, it was so controversial because yes, it did drive new business into a restaurant. It did increase sales, but it came at a high cost. And others would say also that, these companies mined your customer data and controlled your customer data, and you didn't use that information or have access to that information to build a marketing database and all those things. And now virtual restaurant concepts are passing those costs onto the consumer and the consumer's paying a higher price and the restaurant's increasing their margins. Where, where's the balance between those two ideas and where is the state of that piece right now? Because there's so many prevalent third-party delivery companies, their model has shifted, their model has somewhat remained the same. And that can be a really confusing landscape for a lot of operators out there. Yeah. How, it, how would you answer that? Absolutely is. And I think, um, frankly, the way we describe it in the book is that operators have a love-hate relationship with these third-party platforms, right? They love them because they bring them new business and they do all kinds of things that, frankly, it's extremely difficult to do as an independent restaurant yourself. You're not going to go out and build you know, an ordering platform all by yourself. You're not going to go out and build your own logistics network unless you are delivering so much like pizza that it makes sense. Um, and so they bring many, many great benefits to the restaurant industry. But at the same time, Restaurants can get pretty frustrated because they're charging so much for that privilege and for those services. Um, so, you know, I think what what is starting to evolve is number one, 
the third parties have realized that everyone has to show up to the party for the party to work, right? So you need to have yes. the consumer, you need to have the platform, you need to have the driver, and you need to have the restaurants. And if you charge so much that the restaurants either pull out of the platform or don't make it, that's going to ruin the party, right? So they have introduced these tiered pricing structures, which I think make a lot more sense so that restaurants can pick the level of services that are right for them. Um, and then you also see, um, you know, companies like DoorDash with their backend uh, drive service, you see them enabling the first party and basically saying, hey, look, we're a technology and logistics company. We can do technology and logistics either with the consumer coming through our platform or with the consumer coming through your platform. We don't care. We can do it either way. Um, and that's, I think, um, a really big benefit to the restaurants. The restaurants are simultaneously learning that the consumer really does value the convenience of having things delivered. There's, there's a value there that isn't necessarily the food value, right? It's the convenience value. And in some form or fashion, the, most consumers are willing to pay for that, whether it's in a delivery fee or in an upcharge. Um, the big brands for sure have shown that they can get away with doing an upcharge on the um, delivery platform so that their margins are kind of equal across, across the modes of ordering. Um, smaller brands, maybe not so much, right? If someone um, is finding you for the first time on a platform and the only experience they have of your restaurant is the prices and products listed on that platform, they might just assume you're really expensive. They might not differentiate in their minds that uh, you're marked up on that platform. So um, it's important, I think, to think carefully about how you price for those things and also about how you think about them economically. You know, as a restaurant, are you thinking about these third-party platforms as a main part of your business? Are you thinking about them as an incremental part of your business? Or are you thinking about them as a customer acquisition tool to get new people in and then switch them over to your first-party platform? And the answer to that question is going to tell you a lot about how you should be pricing on those platforms and which types of promotions you should be running. Thank you for answering that. You know, there's really a fresh perspective on any topic that comes across your desk as a restaurant owner or manager. And you shouldn't have a singular focus and looking at things just one way. You should look at as many ways as possible. And you just made that point really clear. So thanks for that. Let's talk a little bit more about the labor crisis. Do you see this being resolved in the future? It's so challenging. Restaurants are in a, a difficult predicament because traditionally, you know, the margins have been so slim. They're slimmer than ever right now. And now we're competing with every industry that's looking for staff, industries that have higher margins, that can afford to pay hiring bonuses of thousands of dollars and health insurance and all kinds of perks and benefits. And it's been this really cannibalistic environment where everyone is trying to raid employees from everyone else and they'll do anything they can. And you can't drive down any street in America without seeing the signs now hiring, you know, 18, 20, $25 an hour, hiring bonuses, incentives, this, that, and the next thing. How can a restaurant compete one and two? When will it all stop? And where did the hundreds of thousands of employees really go that are no longer fueling all these industries? The $64,000 question, isn't it? It really is. It's one of those um, where I think it's going to, at least the industry at the moment, everything I've been reading and, and writing about on this subject, Roger says it's going to go into 2022 for, in, into quite a long way, I suspect. And so there isn't much light at the end of the horizon here. Uh, and I, I think for that same reason, and uh, we've just finished writing a blog topic for, for Nations Restaurant News on this, is, is that it's about how does the restaurant take control of it? How, how do you actually think about what you can do yourself 
to be able to be as compelling a workplace as possible, uh, while also recognizing that your employee base has a very different set of requirements. Um, do you know for, I think there was a, a seven shifts um, research item that said for every four line cooks um, that are advertised, and this was a survey across like 7,000 restaurants, I believe, for every four line cooks, there was only one application. So it tells you just the level of interest right up front as to whether people are even interested in applying for a, a role within your restaurant. And, you know, that goes through the various different role types. And I think what that means, therefore, is, yes, there's clearly the minimum wage debate um, that is central to this. Uh, but there's also this piece around the retention challenge. Now, once you have got them, how do you keep them? Um, when you look at the the levels of, I think it was 130% was the number I saw of restaurant turnover, which, of course, is way higher than the 70 80% that we've seen in the last kind of 10 years or so. But in its own right, that 70 80% is much higher than the private uh, turnover, the private industry kind of turnover that we've seen over the last 10 years anyway. So I would argue with you that actually this issue hasn't been something that the pandemic has caused. It's been bubbling there for a long time. And if anything, now what we're seeing is, is that this is a time for us to really try and think about what can we do different. So for me, there's pieces around being able to recruit faster. We mentioned video interviewing earlier, being able to make sure that you've got a system in place so that you can bring people through your recruitment cycle much faster. You've then got this ability to be able to think about flexibility for people, the importance of part-time workforce, um, the fact that people now would like to work multiple jobs and to be able to have that kind of environment. So how do you adapt your entire working environment to accommodate that level of flexibility? And then similarly, how do you create a culture that actually makes people feel part of an organization where they count for something, that they perhaps see a future career with you, uh, where they see that you're going to invest in them. So how, how much do you put into your training? How much do you put into the ability for them to see that uh, that you that, that, that they mean something to you and that you're going to invest in them and, and their future? And, and I think that is what other verticals are offering. They're offering better money, perhaps. They're offering better training. They're offering faster and more flexible schedules. And, and the, the last one I'll mention is the ability to get paid faster. You know, the fact that uh, if I do a shift, I want to get paid tomorrow, not two weeks from now. You know, so all of these things coming together are, are factors that I think restaurants are having to respond to. And again, technology is making it a little bit more accessible. I think you hit the key piece by mentioning the word culture because everyone works for a paycheck but not everyone has a voice in their organization. Not everyone gets to feel as though their contributions matter. Not everyone builds a chemistry with the people they work with. And all these things are absolutely vital for gratification in your, in your work life. So I think you definitely hit it there. Last question. Well, actually, I've got two more, but let's talk about, um, I read in your press kit. Now, this book is just as interesting for people that enjoy food, people that dine out in restaurants, as well as operators themselves. Are there anything, any topics or subjects in the book that cover, you know, for restaurant guests, customers and restaurants that give them more compassion to what operators are really going through today to really understand how much more challenging it is to run their business now than it was and to continue to patronize restaurants. One, because you know you want the convenience, you want the challenge, uh, challenge the chance to eat out, you know, very very enjoyable food and drink and that sort of thing, and the experiences that you were missing when restaurants were shut down. But to find that balance between lowering expectations, perhaps, and just understanding that if you want these 
conveniences and the food that you're going to have to sort of understand that it's going to take a while for things to get back to normal, if that makes sense. Let's let's talk about the consumer's perspective and the expectations that they had, that they continue to have, and just understanding versus just having expectations. Could you speak to that? Yeah. You know, um, first of all, I would say um, consumers will absolutely see themselves in the first three or four chapters of the book. And I think find that very interesting as they reflect on how they've changed, how the kids have changed, and um, how that impacts an industry that we all use constantly, right? We we all eat three times a day. And regardless of how we choose to um, fulfill that need, it's a need that we all have. So I think consumers will see themselves there. In terms of their expectation, you know, I think long-term consumer expectations are only going to increase. They're going to get tougher. Their standards are going to get higher. Um, what they expect of a dining experience is going to go up. Um, what they expect of a delivery experience is going to go up. You know, I, I, I think today um, delivery in the U.S., uh, we say, is quite a bit behind where it is in other countries. And by that, I mean things like in other countries, you can get your restaurant meal delivered with something else. And DoorDash is just starting to do this here in the U.S. Um, in other countries, you can pay to guarantee a certain delivery time. Um, which we don't have here yet in the U.S. And I think as those um, different ways of utilizing the technology to make the experience better start to infiltrate into the U.S., our expectations are only going to get higher. Now, in the short term, it is certainly true that we have been through a lot, and restaurants in particular of all of us have been through a lot with this pandemic. Um, And I think that for a, for a while, consumers absolutely were understanding of that, but everyone's kind of tired of the pandemic, right? Everyone's tired oh, of yes. what's going on, and I think that I think that consumers are starting to want to just let, let's get back, let's um, let's go back to normal. You know, Coca Cola put out a survey um, of consumers talking about their expected restaurant usage, and the great news was consumers were expecting to use restaurants a lot more. They had all this pent up demand for going into dine in. They were going to go to dine in all the time now that they finally could, but they were also going to keep their new off-premise delivery and takeout behavior. That's great news for the restaurant industry that overall we should expect to see visits and sales increase. But as that happens, I think the consumer expectation will go up. And this, in a way, gets tied back to your last question about labor, which is if the consumer expectation is increasing and labor continues to be a challenge for a while, something's got to give. And I think what we'll give is technology. I think restaurants that start to figure out how to not replace, but augment their workers with technology are going to be able to figure out how to give a better consumer experience with fewer people and and maybe even better paid people as well. And still be able to touch the guest in a personal way, even through that technology. I think that that, uh, there's a bridge there and a balance as well. Thank you for sharing. Well, you both have offered so much advice and and great ideas and concepts that just are so encouraging. Last question, if you could each just sort of give your best advice to restaurateurs or general managers about the future, what would you say? Yeah, I would start with experiment. That's that's the word I would use, experiment. And that that's what I mean by that is there is no silver bullet. There is no one perfect system. But the only way to be able to figure this out is to try. And and the beauty of all the various different systems, the technologies, the marketing practices, whether that be digital or otherwise, 
is just to try stuff and to try and test and analyze. And I think if, if restaurants can approach um, the change and the disruption that's happening with an exper experimentation mindset, then I think they're going to be the ones that will ultimately figure out how to thrive um, better than the rest. Thank you, Carl. Meredith? I think I would say, don't forget the basics. Um, restaurants are still about great food served consistently, quality, hot, um, those things are still going to matter. Um, the hospitality wrapped around it, whether it's provided by your own restaurant or a delivery driver are still going to matter. Um, and I think we can get really distracted by, you know, a sexy user interface or amazing technology. And those things are important. Um, and as Carl said, experiment them with them and figure out what works for your business. But don't forget that the basics always are going to matter in this restaurant. And consumers are going to come back to places and tell their friends about places that serve great food. And I say the basics go right back to that word, hospitality. That's right. Well, thank you so much both. To find the book, it's deliveringthedigitalrestaurant.com. Thanks so much to our audience for tuning in. That was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in and stay well, everyone. That's a wrap. Wow, Meredith and Carl, thanks so much for sharing your insights into the industry and for writing this book. You know, I'm really excited. I'm, I'm reading the book right now. I'm just gotten into chapter two, but this conversation today really opened up my eyes to what's uh, ahead, and I'm really looking forward to finishing the book. So thanks again for being a great guest on the podcast. You know, we do have a new feature, and it's called Ask Us a Question. And if you go to the show notes of this episode, of course, about halfway down the page, you can just click a button. You can record a message to me. I'll answer that, uh, and hopefully I'll read your question on the air. So I had a really interesting conversation with a loyal podcast listener. His name is Garfield, and he's running a series of wing restaurants and opening up a new one. And his question is, what was, you know, what are the most important systems to really run, you know, the most effective, most profitable restaurants? And I had to tell him that there are three foundational elements of any successful restaurant. I call it the magic dust. Number one, of course, would be the foundation. The first foundational element is your staff because they interact with every single customer. And you obviously need the best staff. I call it the dream team. So, of course, staff training is super important. Staff training, recognition, rewards would be number one. Number two, the most important system would be cost controls and profit maximization. You need to know what your true food, beverage, and labor costs are. You need to know what your daily break even is. You need a system where you can go every single week and just at a glance, look and know that you're on track and you're staying in what I call your sweet spot. And then number three would be what I call marketing firepower and affinity because affinity is defined as that super powerful sense of belonging or loyalty to a business, to a restaurant. And you want to do that on very little money. And so many restaurants out there spend so much money on traditional advertising and they're not able to track the return on investment from those hard earned dollars. So it's all about what can you do for very little little money that has trackable ROI and drives new and repeat business. Those are the three fundamentals. So if you're looking for those fundamentals in your business, it's all in the Restaurant Rockstars Academy at restaurantrockstars.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. And thanks to our sponsors of this episode, Seven Shifts, the all-in-one labor management platform, and Cisco. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to, to the, the Restaurant, Restaurant Rockstars, Rockstars Podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.